Well, if you got your Bibles with you, we will be continuing in the Sermon on the Mount uh, this morning. Tim started us off last week uh, with an exploration of the Beatitudes, and so we head into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So if you got your Bibles, turn there and hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. This is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray by it this morning as we look not at what we do, but who we are as followers of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would work in us, that you would comfort us, convict us, challenge us, change us. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I started to learn how to cook the very few things that I can cook well, uh, one of the things that I learned about cooking is that before you ever put a pot on the stove and start to cook, you can put yourself behind the eight ball if you don't have the right ingredients. Uh, and to illustrate this, my grandmother, my paternal step-grandmother, uh, she's from McAllen, Texas, which is right on the um, Mexico-United States border. So she's fluent in Spanish, and she's probably the best Tex-Mex chef you have ever eaten from. Uh, her Christmas gift to the family is usually homemade tamales that she makes around Christmas time, which are the greatest things I've ever eaten. And then her salsa will just absolutely blow your mind, and it will also blow your tongue if she gets it spicy enough. But the one thing that she makes uh, is these incredible chorizo beans. Now, I'm not somebody who eats uh, refried beans a whole lot. I've gone to a lot of Mexican restaurants and tried to like refried beans, and I really don't like refried beans. But these chorizo beans, I mean, they are divine. I mean, I could eat bowls and bowls of my grandmother's chorizo beans. And a few years ago, my grandparents actually put together a cookbook of all the family recipes. And so obviously, I go in there one day looking for the chorizo bean recipe, and it's not there. Uh, and I remember my grandmother over the course of, uh, you know, my life, she's always, you know, been very finicky about her recipes, and we've asked her for the chorizo bean recipe, and she says, well, you could never make it. It's like, it's refried beans with chorizo? It seems like it would be something easy to make. And she's like, no, 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 you can't make it because the beans that are required for my chorizo bean recipe don't come in a local grocery store. So you could never get the beans that are required to make this recipe. See, for my grandmother, it's almost not worth going through the effort to cook these chorizo beans if you don't start with the right ingredients. And that's not just an idea that pertains to food, but that's actually an idea that goes through all of life. Think about a football play. Imagine you put 11 guys on the field who have never touched a football, never played a game of football, and you give them a play to run. 
right? And you put them up against a defense that is very well trained in the fundamentals of just how to play football. Chances are good that they might be able to run the play, they might be able to go where they're supposed to, but because they don't have any training at all, who's going to win that fight? The defense is going to win that fight because they have the fundamentals to be more naturally good at football, right? When you start a business, you may look out and you may see all the business models that you might be able to bring and you might be able to copy and do and you might have the, the playbook on how to run this particular model, but first and foremost, before you ever start a business, what do you need to have? You need to have knowledge of your audience and you need to have knowledge of the market in which you're starting the business. Otherwise, if you just go through the rote routine, the business may not work. The business may not fail. And maybe more than anything else, this concept applies in morality. One of the things I hear as a student pastor uh, is before their kids head off to college, a lot of parents will say, you know what, I hope that my kids are ready for college. And usually that's a short form way of saying, I hope that our kids are ready to make the right decisions in whatever situation they find themselves in. And that's a fear that has roots, right? Because you can't prepare your child who's going off to college for every single moral situation that they're going to come to, right? You can't hand them the book of directions and say, all right, your, your classmate's telling you to cheat on a test, you need to turn to page 27 and follow the instructions on how to handle this moral conundrum, right? We wish we could do that, but that would be exhaustive. And there's a lot of things that our kids are going to run into that they don't even know yet. And so what do we want? Parents often say, well, I hope that we raised our kids well. Right? They focus on virtues. You may not be able to prepare them for every single situation of what to do in every single subject. But you hope that you've raised your kids to be kind and patient and truthful and gentle. So that those characteristics show that when they do come up on those decisions, that hopefully they'll make the right one. And so it's this idea that it's who you are before what you do that Jesus actually turns to uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we went through the whole wisdom literature of the Old Testament during the summer, but the Sermon on the Mount is actually the wisdom literature of the Gospels. And the Sermon on the Mount in summary is this is what life in the kingdom of God ought to look like when your heart has been seized by the Gospel. When your heart has been seized by Jesus, this is what life is going to look like. And when it looks like this, it's going to be attractive and winsome to an outside watching world. And I find it interesting that before Jesus starts to go through the law, to go through the things that we ought to do, the, the actions that Christian disciples ought to take, he turns first to character. Turns to character. Before we talk at all about what a disciple ought to do, what a disciple ought to do in the world, he talks first about what a disciple is, who a disciple should be. And I think in a culture where churches, we're all asking the same questions, right? How can we be effective disciples? How can we be disciples that are attractive, that are winsome to a watching world, right? We want to talk about Jesus. We want to bring people to knowledge of the gospel. Jesus wants us to see that before we ever start talking about strategy, before we ever start talking about our actions, we first need to talk about character. And the character of a disciple is two things, salt and light. Salt and light. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at these metaphors that Jesus gives. And I want us to see that if we truly embrace what these mean, to be salt of the earth and light of the world, how that 
is going to lead us to be who Jesus is calling us to be. It's going to provide that foundation from the actions that flow from it. That's going to be attractive and winsome to a watching world. We're going to be effective disciples. We don't just focus on the technique of being a follower of Jesus, but on the character of who Jesus is trying to make us to be. Salt and light. So what does Jesus mean by that? Salt and light. Well, first, Jesus calls us to be seasoned with hospitality. Seasoned with hospitality. And so this is the first metaphor that Jesus uses to describe the character of faithful disciples, that they're the salt of the earth. And one of the things I love about Jesus' teaching is that Jesus' teaching is timeless and it's simple, right? When I say salt of the earth, I imagine you already immediately have an image, something in your mind, a meaning about what you think Jesus uh, might mean to this, and it can be understood by adults and children alike, right? So if we say salt of the earth, what you're probably thinking in your head is, you know, salt flavoring on food, right? And if we're flavoring on food, what that probably means is that Christians, we ought to add goodness and joy to the world, right? Salt adds flavoring to food. And while that isn't a bad description of what salt does, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see how masterful Jesus was as a teacher. And that it can mean that, but it can mean so much more uh, than just goodness and flavoring uh, to the world. And so when you look at the context of this passage, specifically with the Old Testament scriptures that we read earlier this morning, we see that Jesus uh, is getting a little deeper. And what's he trying to communicate? Well, one of the things that we don't think about a whole lot in our modern day uh, is food preservation, right? You can go to the uh, refrigerator and you can open it up. You can put all of your food in the refrigerator, close it up, pull it out when you're ready to cook it. We don't think a whole lot about food preservation because we have so many options as to how we can preserve our food. But I want you to think back to Jesus' day for a second. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have coolers. And so what becomes a really big issue in this society, well, preserving food, right? Because out in the heat or out in the sun, right, if you leave meat out too long, what's going to happen? The meat's going to spoil. It's no longer safe to eat. You have to throw it out. You have to start all over, right? And so in this time period, in order to combat that, what would they do? Well, they would put salt on their meat. They would put salt on the meat because salt uh, stops kind of the water activity that's going on in the meat, which helps prevent the bacterial growth that would happen uh, in the meat. And so salt actually acts kind of like a preservative. It keeps the meat safer to eat. I want you to think about this for a second. If salt is a preservative for meat, what is Jesus implying that a disciple is? Right? A preservative. There's something to being a Christian in this world that prevents the decay of God's creation. That prevents the decay of God's creation. And if you read through the Sermon on the Mount in full, you'll see exactly what Jesus is saying we're here to preserve. And so if you read throughout the sermon, Jesus is cluing in on sin, but more of a broad category is sin. But he's actually focusing in on how sin leads us to be hyper-individualized people self-glorifying people, selfish people. And each category that Jesus is going to address throughout the Sermon on the Mount, whether that's anger, whether that's lust, whether that's divorce, whether that's prayer, whether that's giving uh, our offerings, on and on it goes. Even calling out sin. 
on and on it goes, Jesus is pointing out how the corruptive nature of sin in our hearts has convinced us that life is all about me. Right? Life is all about me. We are the main characters of our story. We are the main characters of life in general. And we hear that and we go, we know that's not true. We can say that with our lips, that's not true. But we believe this truth, all of us do, inherently. Right? You don't have to teach a toddler how to be selfish. It's almost like they are born knowing no and mine. Right? You don't have to teach somebody how to be greedy. You don't have to teach somebody how to be selfish. You don't have to teach somebody how to speak down on somebody else. We get that naturally. But we like to think that that's not true, right? There was a song that came out a few years ago by Luke Bryan, and the chorus begins like this, and I've always focused in on this song because I just think it's so interesting. The chorus of the song begins, I believe that most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe that most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. And while I believe that second part is probably true, if you think about that first part, I believe that most people are good, and you look at our world, I don't think you can believe that to be true, right? And that's a common opinion in our culture, what Luke Bryan wrote in that song, that most people are good, right? Because the common opinion is that there are enough good people in the world that if you entrust meaning and purpose in creating that for people and you give that to humanity, there's enough good people that will outweigh the bad in our society and that we will naturally work for each other, that we will naturally care for each other. Scientists who are not believers will say that we are almost evolutionary, evolutionally hardwired to care for each other as a social species, right? That we are naturally good and that when we are given the option, we will do what's best for each other. As somebody who's a student of history, I don't know how you can hold that position, right? Because if you're a student of history, you know that all of human history has been bathed in blood and power, right? When humans are left to their own devices, right, what do they do? They care for themselves to the exclusion of other people. And that was actually written down in the wisdom of Plato and Socrates, two of the most formative philosophers of our day. They literally wrote down that the strong should eat the weak, that the powerful should reign over the powerless. And so when Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the kind of decay he's talking about in this world, right? That humanity was created to evidence God's goodness, his generosity, his love and relationships, and sin has corrupted us to think it's all about ourselves. Right? Even in your marriage, even in a friendship, if you're honest with yourself, it's not hard to think of a time when selfish began to, selfishness began to creep in. Right? So what do we do? How do we become salt? How do we come, become a preservative to the selfish ideology that has existed since the beginning of time, so to speak? Well, I think the Old Testament has some guidance. And you heard that passage that Julia read this morning. Uh, that was kind of a, a weird passage talking about putting salt on grain offerings. And a grain offering, if you don't know what a grain offering was in the Old Testament sacrificial system, a grain offering was something that you gave out of gratitude and thanks to God for providing for you. 
And then if you actually head to Numbers, you'll see that God is talking with the Levite tribe. And the Levite tribe is the priests of the, the nation. They were kind of the pastors of the nation. And the Levites never had any land. The Levites were only given what was provided for by the rest of the tribe. And so they were taken care of so that they could minister uh, to the people. And God promises the Levites at one point that he will provide for them and he will care for them. And it's interesting to note what he calls this promise, a covenant of salt. So you would put salt all over your thankful gratitude offerings, and you would also look at the covenant of salt in Numbers as a relationship where God is promising to provide for his people, for his ministers. And what you see is that actually across the ancient world, salt was a symbol of covenant love. Covenant love. Salt was a symbol of a relationships where two parties came together and in fact they belonged to each other where they promised to protect to provide for to love each other as themselves and so salt was that symbol that when Israel saw it in their offerings and even when Jesus begins to imply it in the sermon on the mount it's that symbol that reminds Israel of that kind of love a love for each other a love of hospitality a love not just of self where everything is set up to benefit me, but a love that is focused outward. And that's why G when Jesus says when salt loses its saltiness, it becomes useless, right? Because if a disciple becomes selfish in orientation, right, it becomes useless, right? That disciple can say all the right things, it can be all the right things, it can do all the right things, but what's it going to happen to the world when they look at that disciple going to reek of hypocrisy, right? And so as salt, salt of the earth, the characteristic that helps us be effective preservers of our culture is actually the openness of our hearts towards others. When love of neighbor is truly as strong as love of self. And so what does that mean? What do we have to be? Well, it means that we have to be welcoming and serving those who are not like us. Right? Those whom we disagree, those whom aren't in our circle. Why? Because hospitable people are never proud people. Right? In fact, hospitable people, you'll often find that their table is filled with people who make others uncomfortable and upset. And that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and others despised by society. And so as we think about what it means to be salt of the earth, I think God is asking us the question, Right? Who are the people that you're called to be hospitable to? Who are the people that God is calling you to welcome that you don't naturally do? And I think we talk about this as an abstract virtue of loving uh, our culture well, but I think this is a very practical question, right? I think there are people, all of us have them, that we don't allow in our sphere. We don't allow in our inner sphere. We like to keep them at a distance. And so as God is calling you to be salt, to be a preservative in our culture, to be open and for others in a culture that is selfish and individual, right? Who are the people that need to be brought in? Who are the people who are different from you, who disagree with you, who need to be welcomed into your life? Because salt, if it's going to preserve a culture, it's going to remind people that God's creational order, the way he set this up, is not for self 
but it's love and generosity. And that's going to be preserved through a church that opens its arms wide to love those around it. So that's what it means to be seasoned with hospitality. But second, we need to be a light with a a witness. And now I can see the gears turning in your mind because there's a righteous fear that kind of goes along when we start talking about hospitality and loving the world, right? Because if you open your arms up to love everyone, to be hospitable towards everyone, doesn't that invite the sinful, broken beliefs to come in and invade, right? The fear is that if we open our arms up wide to everybody, then the the sinful beliefs that we're trying so hard to push against, they're just going to come in and invade the church, and they're going to take away uh, believers uh, to destruction, right? That's actually one of the major fears of the North American church. And so our plan is, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to call out all of the sin that we see in our world. We're going to diagnose it as sin. We're going to call it out. And then what we're going to do is we're going to insulate ourselves from its effects. We're going to kind of protect ourselves from it. And so the kind of the evangelism strategy is, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to point out all of the sin and we're going to make sure that none of the believers and the non-believers fall into that, those potholes. And that's how we're going to be light in the world. That's how I hear this analogy of light in the world used. That we're going to illuminate truth by exposing the sin of our culture. We're going to help believers be faithful and avoid kind of the potholes of cultural ignorance or avoid the potholes of selfish uh, intention. We're going to kind of, as we've used this analogy up here a couple times, we're going to load up the gospel guns and we're going to shoot at every toxic belief that moves, right? But the issue is, and I think that there's a place for that, So I don't want you to hear me not saying that there's a place uh, for pointing out and calling out sin. Jesus will talk about it later in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the light analogy, the light of the world, is actually used a little bit differently. See, we are light when people look at our good deeds. And what do they do when they look at our good deeds? They look to our Father who is in heaven. See, the light points to the Father. The light of Jesus, the light of his church, is pointing in a specific direction. And to make this point of what I'm trying to say, I want you to kind of follow me through this thought experiment. So I want you to imagine that I have a flashlight, and I give it to you, and I turn out the lights in this room. So where you don't know where the exit is, and I give you this flashlight. And what many people will do is they, and I also tell you that this room is full of holes, that if you're walking around in the dark, you could step in a hole. So you're holding the flashlight, and I give it to you, and you turn it on. And the first thing many people will do is they'll look down, and they'll start looking for all the holes, making sure that you don't step in a hole, right? And so you might be walking, and you'll see a hole, and you'll turn this way to avoid that hole. Oh, you see another hole, you're going to turn that way, and you're going to start, oh, another hole, I'm going to turn around this way, and oh, another hole, so I'm going to go this way. But if you're looking down the whole time, Yes, you may see all of the potholes. Yes, you may be completely safe and you may never fall into any of them. But what have you failed to do? To look up and look for an exit. So yes, you're safe the whole time. But are you actually ever going anywhere? See, as the light of the world, Jesus is calling us to be a light with a witness See, he's calling us to be a reference point for others to see and know God. And in order to do that, along with being seasoned in hospitality, 
Here's the trick. We need to know what we're for, not just what we're against. We need to know what we're for, not just what we're against. I think that's part of the weakness in churches today, that we are so insecure in our beliefs, that any belief that comes up, we're afraid it's going to topple our children. We're afraid it's going to topple our churches. We're afraid it's going to topple our nation. And yet we can trust when we are faithful disciples. The reason that won't happen is because we all have been witnesses to a better story. We've been witnesses to a better story. Because if you're in here, and I hope that you are because you love God and you want to follow him, I know that you've seen and you've tasted the goodness of God. I know that you've seen and you've tasted who God is. And when you've seen and you've tasted and you become an eyewitness to what God is doing in the world, you become a witness that has power. Because you know what? When you know God, you've known a peace that surpasses all understanding in an anxious age. Right? You've experienced an unconditional love from a God who knows you, knows everything about you, and chooses to love you still. In a world where love is conditional, it's set up that what have you done for me lately? And as quick as it starts, it can end. Right? You've known and you've seen, you've heard the testimony of lives that have been transformed, that have been turned around, and the power of what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've heard stories like that all over. And what happens is when we're alight with a witness, we become secure in the promises of God in a world that is extremely insecure about what it believes. See, part of the way that we become effective light is not necessarily by, as a church, shining the light on all of the wrong things to believe. There is a place for that. But more powerfully, we become light by illuminating the glory and the majesty of God because we've seen it, right? Because we become so captivated by the joy that we found in him. When Christ has seized our hearts, friends, when the love of God for us who took our place seizes our hearts, that kind of joy cannot hide itself under a basket. It cannot be contained, it cannot be hidden, it cannot be privatized. That joy will ooze out of us. Because when we've seen and we've known such a great affection of the love of God, how could anything be the same? The family pastor uh, at FPC Orlando that I used to work under, uh, his name was Brett Allen. He always used to say in multiple groups that he would lead, he would kind of have a little smirk when he said, he goes, I'm God's favorite. And then he kind of looked at me and goes, so are you. And I loved it whenever he said it. Because you could see the joy on his face. And you know that when he said, I'm God's favorite, he meant it. Right? And the joy that would ooze out of him when I was around him. I don't remember much of what he did in ministry, but I remember his mannerisms. I remember whenever he would say things like that, you know what, I'm God's favorite, and I knew he meant it. I wanted to see what he was looking at. I was so busy looking down, making sure I don't step in the potholes, and here was somebody who was looking up. He was looking at God. He knew something that I didn't, and I desperately wanted to look where he was looking. I wanted to see what he saw. See, as the light of the world, 
as a city on a hill, not hidden under a basket. It's a call to be captivated by the love of God, to love and to relish in the one who knows us and loves us fully in such a way that everything that comes out of us, our words, our manner, our thoughts, our actions, it drips with that same kind of joy, that we are radiant people. See, we can look down. We can shine the light on all of the potholes that we could step into, the the areas of unbelief and uh, the difficulties that we want to protect from, but we also want to make sure that we are lifting people's eyes And they're looking at a better story because, friends, more than any other time, maybe in human history, people are looking for a better story. They're looking for a story that's not necessarily about themselves because the pressure that that causes. They're looking for someone like God. And as witnesses, we have tasted and seen. We know it. And we can share it. So I'll close with this. What is an effective disciple? Is the effective disciple the one who follows all the rules perfectly, who does all the things the right way? I don't think so. I think the effective disciple is a kind of person, right? One who is seasoned with hospitality, one who is open and inviting and loving as Christ was, who is engaging with the world, who is moving towards those whom they disagree, those who aren't, they aren't like in love and hospitality, but they're also a light with a witness. They're secure in the hope of the promise of God and that captivated by that joy that oozes out of them. So this morning, I want to leave you with this question. What captivates your heart? Before we go into the Sermon on the Mount, before we continue on with the Beatitudes and the salt and light, the question is before us, what captivates our hearts? Does this vision of the kingdom of God give us joy? Does it excite us? Does it get us amped up? Because if that's the kind of disciples that we are, then what flows from us, the actions that Jesus is going to talk about, will flow naturally and fully, full of grace and truth the way he meant it to. Let me pray for us. Father, you call us to be salt and light. Father, you call us to be seasoned with hospitality, a church that is open, loving, caring, engaging with the world around us. But also, Lord, you call us to be a light with a witness, looking up and seeing the glory of the kingdom of God that is coming, a kingdom in which we are known and loved by the Father Lord, we pray this morning that that would captivate our hearts, that that vision of what life can be like would be the foundation for everything that we are. Lord, that that would move us in the direction that we want to share it, that we don't want to hide it under a basket, that we don't want to be selfish and become unsalty. Lord, be with us. Seize our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.